Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another Real Conversation with one of my favorite people uh, to have a real conversation with, one of my favorite authors. I learn uh, a lot from this guy, Mr. Jim Rickards. Welcome. Thank you, Keith. Great to be here. It's, uh, I have like a stack of Rickards oh. <laughs> books, so, and we're going to get into this. His latest book sold out, but you know, we, for those of you that are currently long gold, you'll like this one. Nice shiny cover for you. It'll completely trigger you to the, to the bullish side. Death of Bunny, I have that. They're all dog-eared. I mean, if you spend, I just said this to Jim, but I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, our, 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 our path in this life and certainly in this profession is a lot of learning. And, and Jim studied everything, you know, at least beyond uh, the imagination, I think, that I could study. And I think I read a lot. Um, but he gives me all these different paths to go down. I listen to his books. I read his books. So for those of you that are triggered by what he says, because you may or may not like it, <laughs> like just try to learn from where he's coming from. And, and I do think that that's the most important point, is that you and I, um, I said fractally, like we, yeah. we think about risk the same way. We think about history and its impact on risk the same way. So it's easier for me to really, you know, I'm not like, fanboy or like you know running around like <laughs> chasing you around yeah. the neighborhood but I, I i'm quite fond of like what you've what you've done here it's a compendium of a lot of of your learnings thank you and one one of the approaches i use and i learned this in college my university um this was their pedagogical technique and a few others do the same thing um because uh, today we're so specialized you know, pick a specialty practically in high school or earlier pursue it all the way through become the best at whatever little narrow thing you've selected but I was, uh, I learned interdisciplinary studies. Like, okay, you have to be expert in something, you know, as a, as a lawyer at a primary dealer, I was expert in U.S. government securities market and uh, federal finance and fiscal mm -hmm. policy and all that. But you, you, you try to bring as much to the table as possible. And um, so if you can reach out and bring in physics, psychology, uh, I've been doing a lot of research, uh, well, reading, et cetera, and uh, communications theory lately. It's really helped me to understand crypto. I, I, I wrestled with crypto for 10 years. I knew what it was, and I, I'm sort of not a crypto uh, person. I don't recommend it. I don't have any. Uh, and then, you know, the crypto groupies gang up on you on Twitter or whatever. They go, oh, you're a dinosaur. You're a technophobic. I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I read uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's paper very shortly after it came out. I understood the math behind it. I got all of it. I followed it for more than 10 years, but I I kept saying, well, what's what's there? I mean, I, I know how it works. I know what a blockchain is. I know how the, 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 the math works and how the you know proof of work and proof of concept and I, I get all that, but I, I was like, what what's the attraction? Mm -hmm. And but I finally figured that out um, with uh, with communications theory. It's really I can, I describe it as uh, an hallucinogen. It's sort of you, you see what you want to see. <laughs> um, but uh, but but that aside, it's uh, the point is yeah, my biggest breakthroughs in economics have come from physics, and um, exactly what you were describing, uh, fractal mathematics, which well, you know, is applied mathematics, but uh, complexity theory, phase transitions, 
uh, complex dynamic systems, how they break down, why they break down. That book, Scale, was a very good description. It's uh, systems that work well, when you scale them up big enough, they'll fall of their own weight because they don't mm -hmm. have enough energy inputs or other things that are needed to sustain them. We may be uh, uh, kind of getting close to that e economically uh, right now. But, um, and I've had meetings, uh, it was at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, uh, and I wasn't there to split the atom. Other, <laughs> other people were doing that, but I was, they were, I was getting insights into how they do that synthetically, again, to apply to capital markets. Because capital markets are a complex dynamic system. So we've had 60 or 70 years. I mean, complex systems have been around since the Big Bang. That was one of them, you know, so 13 billion years. But uh, we've had, really since 1960, it developed as a science, and partly because we need the computing power. Um, and it works really well in so many fields. And then one of the things I said was, why couldn't it work in capital markets? And the minute I said that and started looking at it, it was like, oh, this actually describes what's going on. It's not a bell curve. It's a power curve. It's not... Um, an equilibrium method. It's a very uh, inefficient method. I, I once uh, looked at the list of all the Nobel Prize winners in economics, mm -hmm. um, and I estimated about a third of them were for, for things that are just wrong, like empirically wrong. Yeah, it's you know like, Eugene Palma, totally... um, you know efficient markets. Markets aren't efficient. Why did the why did the stock market fall 22 percent in one day on October 19, 1987? What's efficient about that? But um, but there are these other tools that you can use. So I've, I've had meetings you know, with, in Los Alamos, and I said, you know, we could crack the code here. We, we get some physicists, applied mathematicians, a psychologist, an economist, a lawyer, um, you know, maybe maybe an artist. Who knows? Get, get a, a, an eclectic real diversity, not the other kind of fake diversity, uh, and, and just work as a team, team mm -hmm. science, and, and crack the code in, in capital markets. And like, we love that. Like, that, what a great idea. Let's put that in some kind of proposal. Let's get some funding. Let's do it. I talk to PhD economists. They say, you have nothing to teach us. Like, like would you want to join this team? Like, why would I want to team up with a physicist? Or not, we, we have it all figured out. So I'm like, okay, so the, the impediment to improvements in economics are the economists themselves. Yeah. Because they don't, they don't know what they're missing. And it's relatively early, I think. I mean, when I first started looking at it, I just uh, got to Wall Street. And just because I'd been on a junior hockey bus, I'd always read and read and read and read. And I ran into all this literature from the Santa Fe Institute. Right. Which is essentially, when it was only in the late 1990s as this came to be, so it was relatively new material. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this makes more sense. And, of course, I just came out of a you know, liberal arts education where that's kind of how you learn, or at mm -hmm. least they teach you to be a little bit around the rim on everything, right. um, and I'd been taught by Schiller and Mandelbrot, I mean, so, so there were a lot of, like, there's mean reversion, there's this, there's that, mm -hmm. and that's, that's, that's why, I mean, like, there, there's a brilliance to what you do, at least according to me, because I find this to be the better way, and this is like a real, it's a real, um, it's, 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 it's a real appropriate thing. There have been some Nobel Prize with it, like, if you think about uh, Herbert Simon, which yeah. is one of the best books I think has been ever written because it's by a polymath essentially. Right. Yeah, and here Charlie Munger and Buffett cite that as one of their favorite books, but nobody ever talks about it. Yep. Uh, well, I only I only yeah. disqualified a third. There are two thirds that I think do some good work. So uh, yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, it's it's a it's 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 a fascinating thing. I said I wasn't going to start with your book because I want to start with fraud, uh, crypto uh, fraud. But you know, it, lo and behold, you just start talking, and I'm like, well, he just actually started this book with a quote from Matthew that essentially does incorporate where I think people got screwed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, and in his quote, for those of you that haven't read his book yet, to anyone who has, more will be given, and he will grow rich. For, from anyone who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Right. 
And that's the thing, Jim. It pisses me off. I'm on it all day long, every day. Mm -hmm. Cahotes and I retweeting each other. Mm -hmm. You were on it early. I was on it, but didn't see it until it became like readily apparent in front of me. But the people that are going to get killed by this, quite literally, through poverty or loss of wealth or otherwise, in some cases, life, there's suicide watch hotlines on this, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are the people who had the least to, to, to lose. Yeah. And I mean FTX accounts to everything, to LunaCoin, whatever. I mean, the whole, the whole bloody thing was a fraud to them. There were many more people that are going to get hurt by this than Bernie Madoff or Jeff Skilling. Right. Um, there has been so much attention. This, uh, Sam Bankman uh, Freed, his new nickname is Sam Bankman Fraud. But uh, he's been doing all these interviews and all this stuff, which is part of the con. I mean, if you know how, well, and of course you do, how these things collapse, how they cascade, um, you know, you, you build up a balance sheet and all, all of your assets are illiquid coins you print it yourself and your liabilities are real money to real people, that's not going to last. But they, whether they imagined it was okay or they were just outright crooks and didn't care, it doesn't matter because you're supposed to know better. You, you can't be in that business and, and do what they did and not take responsibility for it. But he's making a little, um, you know, tour, apology tour, whatever you want to call it, you know, Stephanopoulos and... Uh, uh, Andrew Osorkin and all these people, and he's saying, "Yeah, you know, you're right. We really, yeah, we really did screw. We effed this up uh, with the risk management. We should have thought." I was like, "No, you're a, you're a crook. You're a fraud. You're now you're extending the fraud by pretending you were just a bad manager. Mm -hmm. There are bad managers, there are bad risk managers, and people lose money, but they're not crooks. But this guy was. But now he's just extending the fraud. But somebody, the reporter." Uh, has actually tracked down some of the people who lost money in this, like real people. One guy, you know, it's two million bucks. Another guy, fifteen thousand. But it might have been like his last fifteen thousand exactly. that, that he threw into this. And uh, I know people made, you know, uh, bought Bitcoin at a buck and sold it at twenty thousand, made, you know, twenty million dollars, paid their taxes like good citizens, and they've been kind of going around the world ever since. So those stories are real. But there were also like there was a, a, a garage mechanic in Korea who hawked his inventory to buy Bitcoin in 2017, just before it crashed 85%, and committed suicide. So it's, there's no, um, the first thing that strikes me about the whole crypto world, there is no wealth creation. It's just, I, the best metaphor I've been able to come up with, they're casino chips. You know, you go in the casino, put your money down the roulette table, croupier gives you a pile of chips, you gamble them. You might win, you might lose. But when you're done, those chips aren't, all you can do is take them to the cashier and get your money out. You can't take them out on the street and spend them. In other words, it's a token inside a, a closed environment mm -hmm. that can be, you know, you can make or lose money, I'll grant that, but it's not good for anything else. So I start out with kind of this crypto is a token that only has any value in the crypto world. Now, what happens when you want to get out of crypto world? You say, I'm ready to cash in my chips. I'm ready to go to the cashier. Um, here are my tokens. Give me my dollars. Well, Sam Bankman-Fried's answer was we're closing the cashier window. Exactly. You can't have it. The other thing that strikes me about this, and this has been fascinating. Okay, the coins themselves, Bitcoin, whatever. I think I have a pretty good handle on those at this point. But I watched this infrastructure be built, and it basically mimicked the Wall Street infrastructure. It wasn't just coins after a while. I said, well, we need custodians. We need exchanges. We need technicians got involved. They start doing, you know, these candlestick charts and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, 200-day moving average. And, and I know all that from Wall Street. Right? Yeah. I've been doing that for 40 years. But I'm like, wait a second. You're acting like the research department at Goldman Sachs 
thinking about, like Tesla, for example. You may love it, you may hate it. That's that's a choice. But they make real cars. There's a car there. And it doesn't have to be tangible. It can be intangible. It can be an insurance company. That's an intangible product. But you get real insurance and you make a claim, they pay you. So the, the Wall Street infrastructure, technical or fundamental, trading, exchange, custody, all that, exists around some real stuff, again, tangible or intangible. Here, you've mimicked the infrastructure, but to uh, quote Gertrude Stein, there's no there there. And so, and a lot of the money that's been made in crypto world is not, I bought a token and it went up. It's, uh, no, I, I own an exchange and, the, the, you know, Sequoia or somebody, you know, gives me a five, $25 billion valuation. I'm a 90% stockholder. I must be worth, you know, at whatever, at 20, uh, 20 billion plus. Um, so, and that's all crumbling. And it's going to continue. Um, what we both know about how dynamics, uh, complex systems collapse. This is a cascading effect. The water does not go back up the waterfall. It just keeps cascading down. So we've seen, uh, you know, Genesis is reported, you know, considering bankruptcy. They haven't filed yet. Um, there were other um, exchanges that have filed for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. It turns out that some of these exchanges, they had all this, all these coins, and they put it in, with FTX in custody. FTX was their custodian. It's like, well, I got some. I'll deposit it with FTX. Of course, they're not getting it back, so now I can't pay my people. I'm going bust. So we're seeing these cascading failures in crypto world, and we'll see more. The question I'm studying and asking is, at what point does that leach over into the real financial world, right. the, the world of real broker, you know, the, the Lehman Brothers of the world, et cetera? Uh, and I expect it will. But uh, these things don't happen overnight. Everyone's like, you wake up the next day, oh, it's all good. What what people don't realize, and, and just the data is here, just look at it. So the 2008 global financial crisis, everyone knows September 15th, 2008, midnight on a Sunday, Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy. It was electronic filing. They shot it in on, at around midnight on a Sunday. Um, but that started in July of uh, 07. Yes. There were the two uh, the two Bear Stearns, Bear Stearns not, not Bear Stearns itself, but the two Bear Stearns hedge funds yeah. collapsed. Uh, I think it was Societe Generale closed the money market fund. They closed the, the gates on the money market fund. And then, you know, Jim Cramer's on with Aaron Burnett, and I was just, they know nothing, they know nothing. He was actually right about that, because he was talking about the Fed. That's easy to say about the Fed. <laughs> they just say they know nothing, and you got it. Um, and then Bernanke cuts, I guess, the discount rate, which is kind of irrelevant. But Bernanke's on the record that whole summer of 07 saying, yeah, we got some stress in mortgages, but it'll blow over. So when did it when did it um, hit, hit the peak? Well, the answer was a year later. It took a year for that to go around. Remember uh, Hank Paulson's Super Civ? And, uh, mm -hmm. That was September of 07. The stock market peaked in October of, of 07, six, uh, six months after the crisis started. That's when the stock market peaked. Then in December, they went around. I talked to you know, some of the seniors who did this. Um, you know, Temasek, um, Kuwait Investment Authority, they went to the major sovereign wealth funds and they all, they basically bailed out Wall Street at that stage. And then it was, it was quiet a little bit in, the, in the, um, the, the winter of 08, but then boom, Bear Stearns in March, uh, Fannie and Freddie in June, um, and then Lehman in September. I remember just a quick uh, uh, anecdote. I was, uh, for about five minutes, I was an, an economic advisor to the McCain campaign in August of 08. And it was right after the Congress passed the bailout legislation for Fannie and Freddie. And I'm on the call, you know, you know all the names, Douglas Holtzegan and uh, John Taylor and all these guys. And they're high-fiving. They're like, great, the crisis is over, and we can get back to Iraq, because we really want to talk about Iraq. And I said, excuse me. I said, this crisis is not over. 
this was in late August, I said, you are not going to make it to election day without a major break in this crisis. It's going to get a lot worse. I, I didn't say, like, what, for everyone knew Lehman. I mean, they were always yep. the weak link. And I did, it's not the question I had today. I said, you're not going to make it till November to election day without a crisis. I said, so get your guy ready, write a speech with a four-point plan. It doesn't even matter what the points are. Just, just have four points. Stand them up on the steps of the Treasury. Um, and say, you know, my fellow Americans, we have a crisis, here's my plan, my four-point plan, you'll win the election. I was laughed off the call, I was not invited back, um, and then when it actually happened within weeks, McCain ran around like a chicken with his head off. He was, he was he's white anyway, but he's kind of pale white. Uh, you know, and then he barges into the White House, he says, we've got to have a meeting in the Roosevelt Room. So Bush, to his credit, said, well, I can't, there's a campaign going on, an election going on, mm -hmm. I can't meet with you without meeting with Obama. So they bring in McCain, Obama, and George W. Bush, and they're all sitting around, uh, I think they're in the cabinet room, actually, and, um, uh, and, and you know, there was a photo op. Obama didn't know any more than McCain, but he was smart enough to keep his mouth shut, just, you know, be cool. And the American people saw this. This guy's scared to death. This guy's cool. I'll vote for him. And if you look at the polls, McCain was running ahead until uh, that meeting I just described, right after Lehman. And then that's where Obama went ahead and McCain came down. Everyone blames on Sarah Palin. I mean, that's a separate story. But th those poll lines down and up crossed around Lehman. And so, um, yeah, missed opportunity. But uh, it's it just goes to show how people, these things take a while to come around. Yep. Just really quickly, same, same thing with 1998, long-term capital management Russia. That started in June uh, 97. And then it went, you know, Malaysia, Asia, Malaysia, et cetera, South Korea, quiet period, mm -hmm. then comes back. So th they take a year to go around. So I don't think we've heard the end of the story. Well, that's, I mean, it's very typical of the cycle. It ends with the credit piece. Right. It ends with the lack of liquidity. Yep. It ends with the leverage meeting. Like, this morning on our research meeting, we we're talking about BREIT, which is obviously um, Blackstone. You know, and it's it, it's in principle. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to say that Blackstone's a fraud. Right. Uh, it's easy to say that FTX is a fraud. Yeah. But in principle, throwing up your gate when you told you know the lowest com common denominator, here's our in-house REIT. Right. You have annual liquidity. You know, initially they they started this with like whatever 250. Thousand five hundred thousand bucks minimum. By the end of it, it's down to twenty five thousand or less to get in because they're still seeking liquidity. Right. But what's happening really is the economic cycle's turning and slowing, and credit spreads are widening, mm -hmm. and interest rates are now in, well, I think, a regime shift. So we have a different jump conditions and cost of capital. Right. And here's Blackstone. You know, they're throwing up the gates. Yeah. And you know, so, so I meant it's the same in the sense that your chips, you know, you can't cash them. Here right. you can't get your cash. It's all, like, isn't it all, I guess, I mean, I have my own opinion, obviously, because I'm stating it plainly, but isn't it all the same thing? I mean, th it's the same thing. It's created out of the funny money where people, you know, over their skis get the people who wouldn't know otherwise in. Right. And then they don't let them out. That, that's exactly right. Except at least, uh, I guess with um, uh, Blackstone, they're not letting them out. And yeah, it's a 70 page offering document, and I haven't read it, but I'm sure if you did, you'd find in there that. On B Read? Uh, yeah. yeah. You, you can nobody put, reads it. You, nobody reads them except I've written a lot you of them. You'd read them. <laughs> I've, I've written quite a few of them. I know what's in there. And uh, and the gate thing is, is in there somewhere. I guarantee it's in, in the fine print someplace. So you're right, it's not a fraud. They're playing by the rules, but they're not supposed to do that. That's not what investors expect no. when they go in. And I, yeah, okay, you've been warned, but that, that's, uh, that's not a good outcome. And it means. 
uh, that there's been some, you know, obviously an asset liability mismatch, as simple as that. Well, the, cr- the, the credibility crisis which we're in, and this is, we'll now find a way to get to your book. I mean, this is really, you know, the credibility of, it, of institutions. I mean, like you said, isn't it amazing that crypto just became like a sideshow of a Wall Street redo? Like, Raul Paul is a former Goldman salesman. Yeah. You know, you just put, you just pull up, put anybody up there and, you know, just pump and dump and it's all out there. Right. Um, and, you know, Coinbase is ran by a bunch of broker dealers. Yeah. I mean, this is the whole thing. And it's, it was just worse that it was not really regulated. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You can look at crypto. I traded, I still traded every day. And every single month end, the most lurky of coins gets fucking marked up right in the close. That's right. Every month in. Yeah, well, just, like, to go, <laughs> just to go behind the curtain a little bit, is that uh, Raul Paul, uh, uh, he has a TV show or something real, uh, um, I, don't know, real I forget, the real TV or something like that. But um, I was invited to come in and you know, do a taping, and they were going to put it on their channel. I was like, fine. Uh, real Vision, I think it's called. So... Uh, so I go in, and they wanted to have like a, a, a Bitcoin gold debate, but I always think they're kind of phony. But you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do that debate. And uh, so they team me up with. Uh, You're the token gold guy, they think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> by the way, I've won, I've won every one of those debates. Yeah. If they had a referee, I won every one for a long time. But so this guy, I think, was uh, R back or something. He's the 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 ground zero for um, modern monetary theory, and our friend Stephanie Kelton and others is Bard Bard College. Uh, there's a Bard Institute and so forth. And he's affiliated with them, so he takes that stuff. So I go in, just the two of us, take for about an hour and a half, two hours. And I just shredded crypto, shredded it, and uh, and modern monetary theory. And modern monetary theory's roots are, um, go back to uh, uh, the, the, around 1910, 1920, it was adopted by the National Socialist Party in Germany uh, during World War II, otherwise known as the Nazis. Um, and uh, I basically did the whole history of it. State control, state money, what's behind it, et cetera. That uh, taping never saw the light of day. Really? Never saw the light of day. They, they buried it and they spent a lot of money on it. But I'm like, okay, you don't like people talking about Bitcoin. You don't like people talking about you know, modern monetary theory and crypto, to, you know, both topics, the way I discussed it. And I, and I, I just went for the throat. And, but it, it was buried. I go, okay, that's the last time I'll. I'll well, that's I mean, that, that's what makes me sick to my stomach about it. I mean, when I first started Hedgeye, it was like, this is easy. Independent research, you got to have shorts, you got to yeah. have longs. We have no conflicts of interest. That's against Wall Street research. That's an easy business model. Right. I never, in, a, in my wildest dreams, would believe in the collusion that we have today mm-hmm. between Wall Street, its financial media, FTX, all of them. Yep. And, and you sit there and say, like, and, and all the while the message was, well, it's our answer to all the money printing. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. You needed the money printing to create this. Right. You know, and it's and now you can see they're begging for more cowbell to bring it back. Like, yeah. they are the loudest in need of the pivot. Yeah. Um, so to me, like, I think that's the most, you and I have been, we've, we've also lived that life where I've been shut down by Fox News. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been, the minute that we wrote a short report on Maria Bartiromo's husband's company. Right. You know. ETF company, uh, Wisdom Tree. Uh, I was done. Yep. And we were right. Right. I mean, it was it, we're dead right. And and being right is is now no longer. Tr- it's interesting. They they can they don't want us to be heard. Right. 
but I think people can hear us right yeah. now. Uh, that, it's well, an amazing thing. thing. Yeah, my wife sometimes gets discouraged because she gets. My wife just just believes in like accountability. It's just like you know, just be fair. It's not even Republican or Democrat. That's that's her thing. And you see, time and time again, you see fraud, um, corruption, uh, scheming, or your worse, and it gets exposed kind of. But there's no accountability. No. And um, but she's still kind of in a you know New York Times, Washington Post mindset. And I said, well, actually, there are a lot of channels out there. I'm very active on Twitter. Yep. Um, you've got your own. Uh, um, a program uh, very successful. There are a lot of um, actually books are one of the few areas where yes. you can actually say what you want. Do you have a good publisher, <laughs> a good relationship? They don't. They haven't squashed my books yet, so um, I'm happy with that. But there actually are a lot of channels to get out there. Yes. So I'm, I'm like uh, decayed at Real Vision or whatever Paul's thing is. That's okay. Uh, but there are plenty of other outlets, and uh, you just have to you have, you have to stay on your game. You just have to stay focused. Um, I say you know I do a ton of writing. I say there's never been a time. It's hard work. But there's never been a time when I sat down and didn't have something to say. No, because there's there's no shortage of material. In fact, it, it, this is it, it's we do so much work. Yep. And then when you finally try to contextualize it into an actionable point or opinion, mm-hmm. then it's time to have a debate. Yeah. I mean, it, you, like you always say, you know, you try to find one thing that I haven't researched, right down to, you know, the the, the bibliography of my book, and you're, you're going to be challenged. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe that because I've studied all your books and looked at all, looked up all your books that you've looked up. Yeah. So it's it's an it's a very interesting time, where I, I forget what the adage or whoever it was that was that said it. I mean, it's really easy to have a political opinion about nothing. I mean, right. a feeling about nothing. Yeah. Hoddle, you know, it, that's easy. Right. It's much harder to have researched it. And have a debate. Yep. Sounds like the kind of thing H.L. Mencken would have said uh, back in the day, you know, <laughs> the sage of Baltimore. Um, the other thing about FDX, you were talking about, you know, easy money and money printing and easy credit, et cetera, as a way of inflating all these uh, balance sheets and, you know, probably these asset liability arrangements. Uh, FTX took it to the next level. They said, well, we don't need to borrow the money. We'll just steal it. Yeah. Mean, all the years I was on Wall Street, and I was involved in a number of aspects, but I was, um, you know, most of the firms, I was general counsel and chief compliance officer. And, and I actually, I've read the rule books of all the exchanges. You've got to be a geek to do that, but I, but I have read them. The, then there are all kinds of frauds, all kinds of schemes, and we, we both have seen them all. But the one like unforgivable sin, the one thing you never do, is take customer money. The, 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 the customer money, <laughs> the, worst the, the house account and the customer money are just kept separate. There's a sky-high wall, and you never dip into the customer money. That was like, you would, they told me in Chicago back, they said, you'll be run out of Chicago, your name will be mud, you'll never be back in this business again. I already knew that, but it's like hearing it from like uh, old bulldogs like Roger Russ, who was head of the Chicago Board of Trade back in the day, <laughs> they, they just put the fear of God in you, and rightly so. And that's what Corzine did, you know, in MF Global. Yeah. He kind of, well, government, yeah, that whatever. Uh, they kind of smoothed it over, but that's exactly what happened here. Um, so yeah, he's doing the, He's doing the apology tour, and boy, where did we screw up? I guess you have to admit that. But but that's part of the con. Yeah. I mean, can we tie, and, and then uh, I think this has got to be part of what you, I haven't read your book. This is the one book I have not read yet. I'm going to read it. I'm going to listen to it. Then we're going to come back, and I'm, we're going to go through the dog It's years. just out yesterday, Keith. <laughs> it came out yesterday. You didn't, uh, you didn't step on that? But okay. that said, you were kind enough to send it to me uh, in advance. So I did have a chance. I just was off reading on all this stoicism type, you yeah. know. Uh, research that I've been doing, but anyway, the 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 tie-in, and I told the guys that I got I got to ask records this because this is still preliminary research or ongoing research on FTX that we're doing. Is it possible 
or have you thought about this being a CCP carve-out? Well, I wish I could rule that out, but you can't. It absolutely could be. Well, I've said from the beginning, by the way, who's who's uh, Natoshi Sakamoto? Um, yeah. yeah, he, she, it, uh, team from Raytheon. I mean, we don't know. Yeah. So let's start there. But absolutely, if, I mean, the first thing that Revelation came out is like, why? Okay, FTX is a disaster. The war in Ukraine is a tragedy and a global economic disaster, getting worse. How the heck does FTX get tied up in Ukraine? But they were. Yeah. I mean, that's that's been demonstrated. That's been been uh, been proven. So FTX, because he had this effect of altruism or whatever, um, we're going to give all, make a lot of money so we can give it away. I guess steal a lot of money so they can give it away. But he created this fund to help Ukraine, and they gave them a lot of money. I don't know the exact amount, but it was well into the millions that they gave to Ukraine. But Ukraine took the money and bought the FTX token. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do with the FTX token? Well, you can launder it through FTX because they're not you know, part of the, you know, um, the DTCC or, or any other you know, responsible organization, clearance organization, and it went to the Democratic Party. Yeah. Ukraine has been a money laundering machine for the Democratic Party since day one, uh, you know, through the 90s and the 2000s, whether it was Hillary or um, uh, Biden. Uh, now, you know, basically they helped to preserve the Senate, partly with a lot of money that went into places, races like Nevada and Arizona that were close races. I don't want to get into the politics, but that money came from Ukraine. Oh, by the way, a uh, good contrary indicator, Time Magazine this morning named Zelensky Man of the Year. Oh, well, wow. I guess, sorry, Person of the Year. I misspoke, but uh, yeah, Zelensky's Person of the Year. I give, the, I give him about four months, by the way. I mean, it's, it's impossible. If you look at Sequoia, Sequoia's long, long history of being the most, if not one of the most, successful Chinese investors. Yeah. Direct. You cannot be that without direct links to CCP. Oh, All yeah. the contacts fully loaded. Absolutely. There, there, there's an interesting, you know, it's, it's very interesting like how this how this played out. I mean, the head of crypto at Sequoia, uh, a guy by the name of Matt Huang, mm-hmm. who basically then left and started, um, I believe it's called Paradigm Capital. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the only uh, firms that's linked currently with Citadel Securities to execute on. Mm-hmm. So the I think of this guy as the guy who opens the doors. Yep. Right? Are you telling me that this guy, by the way, this guy who's also, I think he was one of the first investors in, in his 20s mm-hmm. in, 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 in ByteDance or okay. TikTok. Yep. Uh, his dad, former LTC, they put him, I think they put his dad in charge of LTCM Asia post- you probably even know the guy. I don't know the guy because they have different names. Yeah, we we did have a Tokyo office, uh, but but I could, I couldn't like it. I'm telling you enough of what I know without you know going and going and going. Mm-hmm. But the the direct link between China, China power, power to China, access to venture capital, right? It's sitting right there. Well, it's hard. That's right, Keith. It's hard to look anywhere without finding uh, Chinese influence. And I'm not talking about you know, Chinese Americans. I'm talking about the Communist Party of China, which is what what your reference was to. Uh, yeah, and they've been working on this for 20, 25 years, maybe longer. Um, and whether it's we see it in the universities, in research grants, think tanks, um, and you 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 know I've been on some think tank boards and so forth. Yeah, it's a high power group, and everyone's got a good resume and all that. You, you're trying to do some work, but then you're like. You know, do you know the background of every person sitting in every boardroom, you know, board meeting? Probably not. Um, and yeah, they've just—they—they're like termites. They've infiltra- infiltrated all these organizations. So I haven't seen that direct proof, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. In fact, it's probably more likely than not. Is it? You get 
I mean, ask yourself why. Like I always say with my analysts and otherwise, like why did this happen? How did this happen? Why is pretty, if, if you get it back to the political donations and the media push, I mean, it's not like FTX just started last week. Yeah. I mean, it was obviously against Trump. It was against a lot of different things. Um, but it's really hard to get away from that line without at least pursuing it. And again, like we're, I think that that's the value of having an, uh, an open conversation and debate about something is that what happens is that more people give you more inputs. Well, here, here's where it's fair to use inferential method. And this is used, you know, kind of do this in the intelligence community. Um, I would say if you have all the facts all the data, a smart high school kid can solve the problem. Yeah, exactly. The intelligence community has to solve problems where you don't have all the facts. And you, you, may, you may only have a sliver, actually, but you, have, you can't just say, well, I'll sit here and do nothing until I get more facts. You don't have that luxury because it's life or death, national security is involved. You have to go ahead and try to crack the code even if you don't have all the facts. But there are ways to do that, base theorem, uh, which you use, yep. and I'm, uh, use, use quite a bit, uh, where you start with a hypothesis, and if you have no facts, you give it a 50-50. If it's a binary outcome and you have no facts, give it 50-50 because that's, that's the best you can do. But then you keep gathering facts and you keep updating your uh, yep. hypothesis and it moves. Sometimes you get to 90-10 or it goes against you. You're like, okay, that doesn't work. Discard it. Do something else. So, uh, so infer inferential method is, um, is, is fair in a situation like this. And so let's just take a couple of facts that we do know. Sequoia are not dumb. They're not dumb. Okay, they've got an incredible track record. We, we, we're very familiar with all their successes. So how could you spend five minutes with Bankman Freed and not come to the conclusion that he's a flaky, nerdy, uh, nervous, uh, by the way, that's a, that's a tell, of course, you know. Um, uh, by the way, we study body language. I mean, I, I get a lot, like when Powell's giving a speech, I don't just read the transcript, I watch it live on TV because the body language, you can tell when people are lying. The camera doesn't lie. Mm -hmm. When you're on TV, uh, we kind of are right now, People actually, they don't listen to that much of what you say. They kind of listen. They, they look at you and they look at your face and they say, is this guy honest? Does he know what he's talking about? Is he a straight shooter? Or, you know, are his eyes going back and forth? Is he wiggling in his chair? You know, those are all tells. And they form a judgment about you and they believe you or, the, or not. Uh, but you couldn't spend five minutes with Bankman Free without coming to the conclusion that he's, you know, he, he wouldn't, you know, I've, I've seen... Um, 40-page due diligence questionnaires. You know, when you're, I've been, uh, you know, raised money for hedge funds, been on the other side of that. Um, <laughs> birth certificate, you know, and everything else. Accounting firm, I want to talk to your lawyers, I want to talk to your accountants, uh, I want to see work papers, uh, I want to talk to your banker, I want your banker, you know, that's how you do due diligence. Um, he wouldn't have passed any of those tests, which means they were never done. Right, because because he didn't have any of that. Even the bankruptcy trustee, the guy guy who did Enron, you know, he fixed Enron. He wasn't the, one of the crooks. But that court-appointed trustee went in and said, "I've never seen such a mess." He said, "It's not even the records are bad. There are no records. You know, they were approving uh, billion-dollar loans with emojis. Like, you know, hey, can I have a billion dollars? And they would send back a smiley face, and then somebody it's, it's, would wire the money. So, okay, so so, the, so again, inferential method." Why would Sequoia greenlight that investment when we, we know they know how to do due diligence, we know they know how to ask tough questions, they have a good track record, how this guy passed muster, unless there was an inside green light, somebody said, go ahead and do this, put some money in here. Mm -hmm. And then that's a fair inference, um, not accusing anyone of anything, but that would be where I would start the analysis. And say, well, I don't know where else you'd go. I mean, like um, Cahodes and I, or Cahodes mainly, he's like, who's Friedberg? Yeah. Who's Bill Wang? Like these are. Where else would a 
a, a good Bayesian boy like me, and Bayesian inference process, yeah. look it up, where else would you start than the people that were, were running the damn thing? Exactly. I mean, exactly. <laughs> it's like, that's why it's so incredible. And why Tucker Carlson's like, how did these two bozos figure this out? Like me and Cody. Well, yeah. <laughs> you didn't say it that way. But well, it really is. I mean, well, just well, asking no. some pretty basic starting questions. You were asking basic starting questions that they couldn't answer. Not even close. Uh, let alone the 60-page you know, due diligence questionnaire. Uh, then how does, uh, how does Temasek get involved? You know, they're, they're not, uh, they've been around the block a few times. One of the most sophisticated uh, sovereign wealth funds in the world. Um, well... I don't know. I mean, Singapore is kind of close to China, if you ask me. Uh, so, so these are the right questions, and this is the path to go down if you're trying to crack the code. You know, we don't have a smoking gun, but there's a lot of inference and a lot of reason to think that there's so much more here than meets the eye. And if if they don't arrest this guy, oh. uh, that's 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 all you need to know. He's being protected. He's being protected from the White House on down. Uh, if he's not arrested. You know, I mean, Donald Trump, the Trump organization got convicted of tax fraud. I'm a, a tax lawyer, too. I got a graduate law degree in taxation. Um, okay, I'm not questioning the, the trial and the jury. What I'm questioning is there's probably not a real estate company in New York that doesn't give out a few perks here and there. And uh, I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying it's the norm. And if you want to go after it, it's they're always civil cases. You pay the back taxes and uh, you know some penalties, and that's mm -hmm. how they get out. They don't get these are not criminal cases. You can make it a criminal case, and they did, but that's not typical. It's a you know it's an audit question. But even if you wanted to go after somebody, you would do it civilly. You wouldn't do it criminally unless you were trying to taint the guy behind it, which of course was what was going on. But this is what's called selective prosecution. Hey, if every real estate company in New York got subject to the same standard and they all got criminal charges based on per unreported perks, okay, that's one, that's one state of the world. But it's one and only one firm, and there's a political motivation behind it. Again, I'm not saying that they weren't guilty. I'm saying that they were singled out and targeted. That's the justice system we have today, which is not justice. Um, and so if Bankman Fried sits there in this penthouse in the Bahamas, indefinitely and uh, the last thing they did before they filed for bankruptcy maybe the next day he wired a billion dollars to the bahamian government so that was like the last you know okay that doesn't cover 10 billion of liabilities but they there was a billion floating around somewhere he wired it to the bahamian government so no surprise bahamas hasn't touched him yeah selective i mean i say it internally i mean if if i was nailed doing one one millionth of what Bankman Freed did. Wall Street would have me on the new Alcatraz. Oh yeah. And anyone associated with me would be indicted immediately. Right. It's it's just it's what it is. Yeah. Now what part of your book, you know, is are we going down a and we're just having the conversation in terms of where it goes, but what part of your book, you know, when you say sold out, you know, incorporates this kind of conflict of interest politically, the you know, people really are, people get really angry about this stuff, yeah. and they should. It's yeah. not the rule of law should matter in this country. Right. I think it's probably well, that's the reason why people go to the Bahamas or they go to Barbados or whatever <laughs> the different right. places where you know Cayman Islands, where our buddy there Ralph Paul is. Um, but what 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 is it that people are going to take away from from your opinion on this? Well, the book has a part one and part two. So part one is all supply chain. There are three chapters. So the first chapter it's mostly anecdotal, and that's another place where I diverge from economists, I use anecdotal evidence because it, it works in a, in a base context. Yep. It's just updating information. I, I stood in the London Eye in June 20th, 2016, 
we uh, we rented the eye for two you know two circles on the fer on the Ferris wheel, and uh, but you never saw a film crew set up and break down faster than we got to get this done in two loops, um, and I it was three days before the Brexit referendum, and I said the UK is going to vote to leave the EU uh, by gold short sterling now, and for six months. I got you know unsolicited emails. Hey Jim, thanks for putting my kids through college because that was a great call. Yeah, it was big. Uh, okay, <laughs> and, and the polls were like 70, 80 percent uh, remain. Yep. Okay, so how did I do that? Well, uh, there was a lot of there was some you know more deep dives, but I was in London, and I talked to taxi drivers, chambermaids, concierges, um, waiters, waitresses, you know everyday Londoners. I couldn't find one person who wanted to remain. Not one. Now London is ground zero for remain. Like okay, uh, um, you know Brighton or uh, you know Birmingham or whatever, they were going to vote to to leave. They wanted Brexit, but not in London. That's where all the bankers and all yeah. the smart people were. I couldn't find one who wanted to uh, remain. So I said, okay, I'm in the heart of Remain country. I can't find a remainer, so they're going to leave. You know, but that's that's the inferential method. That's the value of anecdotal evidence. So chapter one is kind of anecdotal. I talk about. You know, Junior's cheesecake. They couldn't make cheesecakes this time last year because cheesecakes are 85% cream cheese, and there was a cream cheese shortage. Um, and you know, but but to make a point that, that that it was real. Now look, it's not like East Germany in the 1950s where you go in and all the shells are bare. I'm not saying all the shells are bare, but some of the shells are bare, and Americans are not used to that. And even today, yep. since a year later, all right, maybe the paper goods aisle is stocked up, but did they have your favorite hot sauce or the kind of chips you like or particular kind of soap you like. Well, you'll find big gaps in the shelves even now. Um, but there's a more serious aspect of that, which of course was the baby formula shortage. Now there's there's a good example of how complex dynamic systems collapse. And how did that happen? Okay, there were two infant deaths in the Midwest. That's tragic. Um, but they suspected the baby formula. So the FDA shut down the baby formula plant. And by the way, it turns out there was never any linkage between the two. But as a precaution, they shut down the baby formula plant. Well, that plant made like 85% of uh, the baby formula in the United States. So that was the beginning. So the bureaucrat who did that, issued that order, wasn't thinking, huh, I wonder if American mothers and infants are going to be able to get their baby formula. They just shut down the plant. Mm -hmm. So then it got worse because there's a program. It's like uh, they don't call it food stamps anymore. SNAP, I guess. You get a debit card. But there was a way of subsidizing um, poor and lower income mothers who couldn't afford baby formula, mm -hmm. and they would give you some money. But you had to buy a certain kind. You couldn't just buy any baby formula you wanted. Well, the kind that they that was uh, subsidized was the one they shut down. So now that they would say, well, the answer from the government was, well, just get a different kind of baby formula. I was like, no, we can't afford it. That's why we're on the subsidy program. And the one you shut down is the only one we're allowed to buy with our with our debit cards. So now you're you're stressing uh, you know, poor mothers, low income mothers. Mothers across the across the country, um, all because of a decision that maybe has some basis, but nobody thought it through. Mm -hmm. But it's an example of how when you have these really long supply chain, people go, "What's a supply chain?" I, I did a how about I did a radio show at uh, one o'clock from one to three a.m. this morning. Um, it's coast to coast a.m. It's, it's one of my favorite shows because it's um, they have a Q and A section at the, or the you know it's live two hours of live radio in the middle of the night, but it's, they're based in L.A. But uh, the people going in were truckers, like real, like real truckers, yeah. and they were on the road because yeah, like they got, they, got they, they, they got hands free. And they're like, yeah, I'm out here. I just I've uh, been a trucker for 20 years, and I just I bought my own rig. I'm an owner operator now, and uh, 
But what I'm finding is, you know, the shipping rates are going way down, which they are, um, because demand, because the Fed is destroying demand, going into a recession. So the shipping rates are going way down, but the f- price of fuel is still high. He goes, how long is this going to last? I said, well, I got bad news for you. It's probably going to last for a while. Yeah. But I always tell people in Washington and New York, I said, get away from your screens. Get out. Talk to some real people. You know, this is, this, uh, by the way, people calling in, you know, night watchmen, taxi drivers, uh, night owls, insomniacs, and truck drivers, my kind of people. You know, it's like this. <laughs> I, I, I've had, I drove, I drove a forklift. I drove a taxi. I've had most of these jobs. But that's actually how you learn stuff when you talk to, yeah. to real Americans. But, um, so, so the host, he says, well, Jim, give me an example of a supply chain. I said, well, I'll give you a simple one. You go to the store and you buy a loaf of bread. And you ask the person, well, where did that bread come from? He's like, well, there's a bakery on the other side of town. It came from the bakery and they drove it by a truck. I was like, okay, that's a really simple supply chain. But the bread, did it have like a plastic wrapper or a paper wrapper? Where did the wrapper come from? And by the way, a truck drove it from here to there. Who made the truck? And where did the fuel come for the truck? And who trained the driver and how the driver get in the cab? And let's get back to the bakery. How do you bake bread? Well, in an oven. Where'd the oven come from? You know, that's tempered glass and steel and thermostats and semiconductors, et cetera. Probably came from 15 different countries. Um, oh, and how do you make bread? Well, flour. Where'd the flour come from? Came from the mill. Oh, well, where'd the, where's the mill? Well, it's over there. It's in Minnesota, you know. Well, how did they get the flour? Well, they bought wheat from the farmers. How did the, how did the wheat get there? It was on a train. You know, how do you run a train? Diesel fuel. Oh, okay. And what about the farmer? How do you grow the crops? You know, and uh, well, you need some seed and tractors and reapers and diesel fuel. And they got GPS and everything else. Oh, by the way, you need some nitrogen fertilizer to run the farm. That comes from Russia. A little war going on over there. So the point is, that's what they call the extended supply chain. Yep. When you really get into it. And then everything I mentioned, every truck, every oven, every you know mill, they all have these vertical supply chains because their suppliers mm-hmm. have suppliers of their own. And you very quickly come to the realization that the supply chain is not part of the economy. It is the economy. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can think of. And this, you know, the glass, the, the book, uh, the clothes we're wearing, there's nothing you can think of, tangible or intangible, right. that is not the output of some supply chain. So there's kind of no topic more important if you're trying to understand the economy. Uh, it's what the economy is. Then, uh, I, there's what I call supply chain 1.0, which I date from 1989 to 2019. And then supply chain 2.0 is coming because everyone said, Jim, this thing broke down. Mm. Can you fix it? I said, no, you cannot fix it. But there will always be supply chains. There'll be something new to replace it. And let's, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what that is. But uh, supply chain 1.0, so I, I actually start the book in the introduction with a um, a description, pretty vivid, of a Bronze Age shipwreck, reliably dated to 1200 BC, uh, off the coast of Turkey in a place called Ulubarun. And some sponge diver discovered that he was diving for sponges, and he saw a jug. He said it had funny-looking ears. Well, an expert knows those are handles, you know, for the for this jug. So he reports it. The Turkish archaeological authorities go in, 10 years excavating on. I guess that's the right word. Underwater archaeology, uh, and they bring up everything greatest discovery of its kind ever made. Now, on that vessel off the coast of Turkey, they found amber, which comes from the Baltic Sea. They found gold, which at the time came from Sudan. Hmm. They found swords, which came from present-day Syria, Damascus, and so forth. The vessel itself was made of Lebanese cedar, and they found olives uh, and olive oil, which would have come from uh, Italy. And uh, they found a carving of Queen Nefertiti, which is probably on its way to Alexandria. So when you when you plot all those points, you're practically from the Arctic Circle to the equator, and from present-day Iran, Persia yeah. at the time, to Spain, 
and I calculated it, it's 5 million square miles. So here we had one vessel in 1200 BC that was in the middle of a 5 million square mile supply chain. So there's nothing new about supply chains. So what was new? In 1989, um, the Berlin Wall fell. 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. 1992 was uh, Deng Xiaoping's southern tour. You know, China grew a little bit in the 80s, but really took off in the 90s. Mm -hmm. They had to get past Tiananmen Square, and uh, that was Deng Xiaoping's last hurrah. And then Bush decided, okay, you're you're out of the penalty box because of Tiananmen Square. Let's get to get get to work. Uh, but at the same, around the same time, you had increased computing power, applied mathematics, artificial intelligence, and more data collection. So all of a sudden, in terms of data, telecommunications, and, and computing power, you had the tools. And this is when we went from international international commerce, which I had always worked on the 60s and 70s and 80s, to globalization. I remember in the 90s, um, you know, the college kids, you know, children of friends of mine or whatever, my own kids, they would all, all talk about globalization. Like, What's globalization? I've been doing this for 20 years. You know? uh, but it was new because uh, China was in the game, Russia was in the game, um, new countries were in the game, and suddenly direct foreign investment took off. So now the supply chains, I just get one about the baker, they were going from Shangsheng to New York or from Shanghai to Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. There were 9,000 mile supply chains. And when you stretch them that thin, they become extremely frail. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you know from complexity theory, you, it breaks in one little place, the whole yeah. supply chain breaks yeah. down. So, so why was that done? It was done in the name of efficiency, and efficiency is just another way for lower costs. And it worked. I mean, Walmart and Amazon and Apple, they all did the same thing, many others. Uh, and they got the cost really, really, really low which meant either higher margins for the participants or lower costs for the consumers. In practice, it meant both, and that was a good thing. But there were, and I, I highlight this in the book, yeah, that worked, but there were hidden costs hmm. that were never taken into account. They, were only, they weren't accounting for the hidden costs. What are the hidden costs? Number one, what we're seeing before our eyes, this fragility, this breakdown. I'll give you, again, a concrete example. So Germany makes great cars. I love German cars. Um, you know, Volkswagen, uh, Mercedes, not counting the ones in South Carolina, um, BMW, Porsche. Okay, so they make great cars. Well, there's about 100 miles of wire in a car because you've got to connect everything. Um, you know, the, the too many electronics, if you ask me, but 100 miles of wire in a car. You can't just throw them on the floor or the front seat, right? So there are these plastic conduits, and it's one of the first things you put in a car in an assembly line, and you run all the wires to it, and then you do all the connections. Turns out those conduits came from Ukraine. Well, once the war broke out, they couldn't get them, so Volkswagen and, and Audi uh, and, and, and Mercedes are shutting down major assembly lines in Germany because they can't get a plastic part from Ukraine. Hmm. So that's that's the hidden cost. That's the fragility or the frailty of the whole thing. Uh, yeah, and eventually you scramble around, you find another supplier, but you might have been shut down for a couple of weeks waiting for those parts. Well, multiply that by, by everything, you know, with, in the, the baby formula and the, the conduits for the cars and everything else you can think of. The whole thing was breaking down. So we, we made it hyper-efficient and we were successful, but the hidden costs were never taken into account. We're seeing it today. So hidden costs um, like that, you could take this book and say, if inflation used to headline, which is bullshit, peak at two to three. Right. It's going to peak it. It's going to now trough at double that or more because the hidden costs have been revealed. At right. a bare that that's one big block right. to get past. There are people on Wall Street that like I compete with, I guess, um, 
it's more like old wall stuff, right? Like just say shit. Like um, inflation's going to be at two next year. I mean, first of all, that's mathematically impossible, right? right. Owner, owner's equivalent rent is a third of the calculation, and it's going to be at six mm-hmm. for the foreseeable future with its legs, so that alone is going to be two. Right. Right. So you would have to, I guess, my next way to explain to institutional clients is going to say, oh, have you read Rickard's book? Because mm-hmm. it'll save me some time. Okay. Right. Because then I won't have to, because, you know, Wall Street's really interesting. An institutional manager, as you know, because you talk to them all and all that stuff, mm-hmm. they, they, it's Occam's razor all the time. They want it simple, simplified, simplified, simplified. And you're very good at simplifying the complex. That's what a, a great book does. Um, but this will allow me to say, you know, I can't say McFly, but look, this just happened. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to say that that is not a factor, then it's still going to be above two anyway. <laughs> right. Well, now now you're into chapter four. So so uh, so chapter one is uh, you know anecdotal like, like structural supply chain. Yes. Structure. <clears throat> pardon me. Chapter two is why did it break down? Where? Why? How? What policy? What specific events caused it to break down? Yep. And then chapter three is. Uh, why it won't be, why it can't be repaired. I mean, I, I hate to overuse metaphors, but a good one is you have a really beautiful, expensive vase. Somebody knocks it over and it breaks into 5,000 pieces. You're not going to put it back together. You're going to get a new vase. Yep. The supply chain is broken. We cannot put it back together. We won't. Uh, neither the U.S., China, or China want to. And there will be a new supply chain, and I talk about that at the end of the book. Um, but in between, there are two more chapters, um, and our conversation kind of reminds me of my conversation with my editor, who's a superstar, when we were planning the book. And I said, okay, supply chain, got it, you know, do, do a lot of research, but uh, she said, Jim, you have to have a chapter on inflation. I said, of course, you know, the supply <laughs> chain is causing the inflation. Um, but I said, Nikki, I said, I'm going to have a chapter on deflation. Too. I said, yeah. why? I said, because that's going to follow, not right away, yeah. but that comes next. Um, so we said, okay, so that's the outline of the book. So the chapter on inflation, now here I make uh, what I think is an important point, and of course you know this. Um, inflation can come from two major vectors. One is the supply side, which is called cost push inflation. Costs go up and it gets pushed onto the market and the consumer. The other one is demand pull inflation, yeah. which is more psychological. It's driven by consumers. It's like, ah. Eh, Thinking of buying a new refrigerator, um, as what's the rush? Oh, the price is going up. Well, I better go buy it now because if I wait six months, it's going to be you know 20% more. Now, when you look at the 70s, and you know I lived through it, um, that started out with supply shocks from the Arab oil embargo after the Arab-Israeli yep. war in 1973. The price of oil quadrupled in 1974. Now it went from three to 12. Sounds you know small change compared to today, but it did uh, go up by a factor of four yeah. in like six months. Um, so that was a shock, and then that spread. But it actually, um, if you remember early in the Ford administration, uh, Gerald Ford now in Greenspan, they had these buttons that said "Win," which stood for "Whip Inflation Now." It was a big PR campaign. Whip inflation now. We were in one of our worst recessions since World War II within three months. Stock market fell, I think, 30 or 40 percent. I, I was just out of college. But the I, deflation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just out of college, but I, I said, I'm going I'm to go to graduate school, I think. But all my friends went to Wall Street, and they were like, yeah, I'm a Wall Street. Making all this and they were, all, they were all unemployed within like six months. We were commiserating. <laughs> but, but the point is that proto-inflation turned into disinflation and recession and the stock market crashed very quickly. But then it came back again, thanks to our friends Arthur Burns and G. William Miller. G. William Miller, not well remembered, but probably the worst Fed chairman ever, um, although that's a major claim. And then uh, 
they just pumped the money supply, and then it, and then it did take off on the demand side. So by the late 1970s, by then I'd actually started working for a living. Uh, I was at Citibank. I was the International Tax Council. They used to just give you a raise. You didn't even have to ask. They would say, hey, here's another $20,000. That's back when 20000 was real money. Yeah. And uh, they, they would just give you a raise because they were afraid you were going to quit. They'd say, well, thank you. Uh, and then they'd give you another one a few, a few months later. That was out of control. And that's when gold went from $35 to $800, a 2,100% increase. Um, and then Volcker came in and crushed it all. So that was the story. Now, now let's come to today. The inflation is coming from the supply side. It is coming from the supply chain breakdown. The pandemic made it worse. The war in Ukraine made it worse. That's not where it started. I was actually able to trace the roots of this. It started with the Trump tariffs on China in 2018. Now, I don't want to debate tariff policy. I actually happen to think that was a good idea. But what happened next was, um, so Trump throws the tariffs on like refrigerators and uh, appliances and the solar modules. Well, it was applied to everybody, but China made most of it. So it was really aimed at China. So China shoots back. Uh, the two largest soybean producers in the world are the United States and Brazil. Mm -hmm. The biggest consumer is China. They need the protein. They were buying all their soybeans from the United States because we were buying all the stuff from them. Like, well, what can we buy from the United States to balance the, the, the deficit a little bit? They will buy the soybeans. And they did. Well, after Trump throws the tariffs on, China sends all the orders to Brazil. That's not a phone call. I mean, you got vessels at sea, you got port logistics, you got farmers who got to increase their capacity, you got to build new facilities in Brazil, uh, and everyone involved. Um, nobody wants a six-month deal. They want a five-year deal or a three-year deal at least. So all that soybean production is now expanding in Brazil. All the Brazilian soybeans, are not all of them, but a lot of them are going to China. And that's locked in. That's not coming back to the United States anytime soon. So what do the U.S. soybean growers do? Well, they, they looked around and said, hey, the Netherlands, they need soybeans. So we start selling to the Netherlands. But, but think about what you're doing to, uh, to transportation lanes. You're scrambling them. Yeah. You're saying, okay, you're not going out of Port of L.A. You're going out of Houston or Port of Savannah or Port Elizabeth. And, oh, Brazil, you know, you get better fixings up in Rio or uh, wherever they were coming out of, uh, Buenos Aires maybe, to, um, to get those to China. You know, and can you go through the Panama Canal or not? But this was a major uh, reshuffling. And uh, it was the beginning, and then the tariffs went back and forth. They escalated to $500 billion on each side. Uh, but it, this really broke the supply chain. And um, then, then the pandemic made it worse, and uh, the, the war in Ukraine made it worse. Now, how do I know that? Um, it turns out all this data is available. Every vessel has a GPS. You know where mm -hmm. they are, where they're going, what's on board, etc. cetera. And um, there was an author who specializes in maritime trade. She wrote a book and covered everything we just discussed, uh, but uh, as kind of a blessing, her book came out in December 2019. So it was like a controlled experiment. It was pre-pandemic. Oh, wow. Because if you had the tariff war and the pandemic mushed together, you know, as an analyst, yep. it's very hard to separate this. Who caused what? I've got two yeah. things going on here. But this, but this is a clean pre-pandemic break, and you can see the breakdown happening already. Excellent. So, then, so, the, so that's how you can date it. Say, okay, it started in 2018. But of course, the pandemic made it worse, and China's still got zero COVID. They say they don't, but we'll uh, do the math there. That's it's, mm -hmm. it's going to come back. Um, 1.4 billion people. If they decide to let COVID rip, that see. Okay, so here's another Wall Street uh, scam, not scam, but you know, get your pom poms out. Um, so Beijing, and I spent a lot of time in China, and I dealt with Communist Party officials. Beijing is now saying to the provinces and the cities, you got to ease up a little bit. We got social unrest. 
you know, if you have COVID, you can stay home. We're not going to put a steel bolt in front of your door and all that stuff. Okay. So Wall Street's saying, hey, uh, zero COVID's over. China's going to boom. Buy Chinese stocks, right? No. Um, first of all, this is going to last a very short period of time, and the virus is going to start to rip. Mm. The masks don't, I talked about this in my last book, masks don't work, lockdowns don't work, the vaccines don't work. Five million Americans who were double vaxxed and boosted got the Omicron variant in December 2021. So tell me the vaccines work. They don't. Everyone knows that. None of this works. And the Chinese vaccines don't work either, and they don't even want ours. So the virus is going to go where it wants. It's airborne. I mean, the best cure for COVID is to go outside with no mask, get some exercise and sunshine and some vitamin C. And the cure for COVID is COVID. You get it, you get over it, and then you, you're, that's more immunity than any of these vaccines. They have no immunity. So there are 1.4 billion people in China. The infection rate, we've seen this from the U.S. and, and Europe, will get to about 30% before you achieve herd immunity. So that's 420 million people are going to be infected. The fatality rate is about one quarter, 1%. So it's a 99.75% survival rate, 0.25% fatality rate. So 0.25 on 420 million is a million dead, approximately. Um, so they're going to have a million dead, but probably 20 million looking for ICU beds. Yeah. They, they don't have them. Don't have so do people like the lockdowns? No. Were they rioting in the streets? Yes. And that's a threat to Communist Party legitimacy. But when, if they let the virus rip, that's going to be a different threat, which is the fatalities, the uh, stressed hospital system. Uh, that's going to be a whole separate cause of complaint in different parts of China. So the point is, they have no way out. they got two choices, but they have no way out, no good way out. So the idea that you should buy big, large-cap Chinese stocks on this is nonsense. It's, it's amazing. Like, uh, yeah, it's it's you're saying pom poms. It's like the the amount of narratives we've had to put up with, and it's all it's a meme machine, right? Yeah, it just mm -hmm. goes faster because we have Twitter and we have so many communi communication right. platforms. Like I said, any any opinions believable if you have no knowledge. I mean, right. it's, it's it's like. Um, um, we're actually we're running right at the hour here, but I definitely, if you don't mind, I'll ask the top voted question. Oh, sure. Because yeah. uh, I know that you'll, you'll, like you said, you want to talk for two hours in, in the middle of the night to truckers, which yeah. is great. That's, what a difference, right? Like, I mean, how many people do you watch bloviate on TV that aren't real? Well, I can, I can talk <laughs> to hedge funds, too. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with that. Um, this is for, from Fernando. Uh, is an economic depression that occurs once in a century coming? That's a top-voted question. That's okay, a that's a great question. I'll give a, uh, I'll give a direct answer, but maybe not one people expect. In my view, the United States has been in a depression since 2007. Hmm. And Japan has been in a, in a depression since 1990, 1989, 1990. Uh, and that falls out of people not understanding the definition of a depression. So we all know what a recession is, except Janet Yellen. Uh, two, consecu <laughs> two consecutive quarters of declining GDP is a recession. I know there's some bells and whistles, and the National Bureau of Economic Research has got to weigh in. I get that. But we had two consecutive quarters in the first half of 2022, declining GDP. There's your recession. Mild, brief, okay, but, but that, that qualifies. Um, and Japan has had eight recessions since 1990. Uh, a depression is different because people say, well, gee, if a recession is two consecutive quarters or three or four consecutive quarters of declining GDP and a depression sounds worse, that must be 10 quarters of declining GDP. But that's not the definition. I use John Maynard Keynes' definition. He said it's a sustained period um, of below trend growth in which you neither collapse nor return to trend. So it's depressed growth. And the metric there is 
if you're capable as a society and a mature, uh, you know, advanced industrial economy should be, of three, three and a half percent growth or even four percent growth on occasion, and you're running at two, that's a depression. Now you don't have a technical recession, but that gap, that delta mm. between four and two, of course, gets wider. This is lost wealth. We're now into like seven, eight, nine trillion dollars of lost wealth. Average annual growth from 2009, when that last recession, well, the whatever it was, recession was over, to uh, 2019, you know, just before the pandemic, so 11-year yep. period, was 2.2%. But we should have been running three, three and a half, or maybe even higher at times. So I would say that's a depression because it's depressed growth under Keynes' definition. So we're still in that. And by the way, the Great Depression from 1929 to 1940 had two technical recessions. 1929 to 1932 was a technical recession. 1937, 1938 was a technical recession. But 1933 to 1936, the U.S. economy grew very well. The stock market rallied uh, in the middle of the Great Depression, but that's my point. Um, the problem was it rallied, but we were from such a low level that it's like you fell in a 100-foot hole and you climbed out 50 feet. Mm -hmm. Okay, nice going, but you still got 50 feet to go. It's like, it's like a, I mean, a lot of these questions have to do with some version of the same thing, which again, it's Wall Street talking points. It's narrative. Yeah. Well, the Fed thinks it's soft landing. Well, Jim Rickards thinks that we've been in a depression since 2007. Right. I mean, it's interesting, guys, if you can pop it up. I don't know if they have it, but like our nowcasts, which have been pretty damn good. Oh, yeah. I mean, for for uh, slide 14, guys, for Q2, for Q1 and Q first half of next year, we're we're running between negative we're at negative 2.8 and negative two for back back to back sequential quarters that that will yep. blow away the sequential back to back that we just saw, and and that to me like I ask myself okay obviously we've been calling for a recession but I'm always asking myself are we bearish enough is mm -hmm. it more like a depression but you just changed my thought about like depression is. Is that longer? Yeah. Is that longer? So let's just say we're in a depression, but that's, you know, that's, I have a definition I provided that people can debate that. But to your point, Keith, we're, yeah, we're heading for a recession. I'm kind of where you are, maybe a little worse. Uh, the, this, mm. re this recession could be more severe. It's, if it's not here already, it's coming very soon. Certainly, first half of 2023, I agree with that. You were talking about narratives, and I always say, you know, reality always wins. But not on day one. The narrative, <laughs> the, the narrative can prevail. And so I right, tell myself that every day before, yeah. uh, after my first tweet, which is top of the risk management warning, I should take a deep breath and say that to myself. Yeah. <laughs> and these, these narratives can. So right now there there are three narratives going on. There's the narrative. There's what Jay Powell thinks. Yeah. And we know we know what he thinks. I, I always say forecasting the Fed is the easiest thing I do because they tell you what they're going to do. You just have to listen and and believe them. Um, so I don't need to recite it, but it's, you know, he's going to 50 basis points in December, probably 50 basis points on February 1st, maybe 25 basis points on March 22nd. They're going to keep raising rates. Um, they're going to look for the terminal rate. No one, I don't know what it is because Jay Powell doesn't know what it is. No one knows what it is. <laughs> but it's the Potter Stewart approach. They'll know it when they see it. So, um, so, we'll, so Powell is determined to get there. In my view, He's already passed the terminal rate. We're, we're at the terminal mm -hmm. rate. And because recession's coming off the top, it's not going to be 2% you know, next month or anything, but it's coming off the top. So then this brings us to the Wall Street narrative, which is, oh, okay, uh, inflation's off the top, uh, economy's slowing down, 
Powell's going to pivot. This is the pivot narrative. Um, probably cut rates by, you know, March or April. And if they're cutting rates, buy tech stocks. You know, so it's like, <laughs> you know, buy NASDAQ, you know. So that's the, that's the, that's the Goldilocks soft landing. Yeah. And I can't believe Powell actually said soft landing at the Brookings, but whatever. Maybe he's, maybe he's feeling good that day. Um, then there's my version. Maybe he was reading the paper. Oh, did you see? Did you like? Did you watch that whole interview? Oh yeah, I, I was like when he, when he told uh, I forget the guy. The guy was forgettable. David guy, David Wessel. Yeah, or, uh, he was kind of arrogant, but he was yeah. like, uh, of course, he's just like um, talking down at the audience and stuff. But anyway, the, yeah. the, he, he said, well, his best question was like, what does your day look like? Like, how does it start? Yeah. And Powell's like, well, I get up and I read the papers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like really, yeah, well, yeah like exactly. like you re- you and he says he has his coffee and he, yeah. he reads the papers. Yeah, I, now, I mean, it isn't it, talk about how you're feeling and why these narratives are perpetuated. It's because the narratives of the old wall and the old wall journal and everything else right. is in the papers. Yeah. <laughs> so I so so my right. I actually used to commute into New York by train for a while and, and back in the Wall Street Journal days. And there's a certain way of uh, uh, pre-internet. A connect. Yep. Yeah, pre-internet. <laughs> A, a Connecticut commuter to New York could fold the Wall Street Journal a certain way so you could turn the pages mm. without opening up the full spreadsheet and hitting the guy next to you. It was, <laughs> it was, it was an art to that. Yep. Uh, and, and you got to wash your hands when you get there because you got ink on your hands. Um, uh, so, yeah, the question is, what do you do before work? He goes, I work. Uh, okay. But uh, so, that, there's, so that's Jay Powell's narrative. And I'll tell you what drives it. There's a, there's a clue. There's a hidden aspect there that is driving it. And we'll come back to that. Then the Wall Street is... Yeah, you, you probably are at the terminal. Inflation is coming down, so you're going to pivot, cut, and Goldilocks soft landing buy stocks. My version is that uh, I understand Powell's path exactly. Uh, Wall Street's right that he's probably at or near the terminal rate already. Inflation is coming down already. It's going to come mm-hmm. down some more. But where Wall Street is wrong is that this is going to be some kind of soft landing. This is going to be a very hard landing and a very severe recession. Um, for for a lot of other reasons, including the fact that you're trying to, going back to what we said before, and this is in the book, you're trying to destroy supply inflation with demand destruction. It'd be one thing if you were Volcker and, you're, and the demand is out of control and you need to crush that, but you're trying to control this inflation with this toolkit. They don't, the Fed doesn't drill for oil, they don't run farms, they don't drive trucks, they don't do anything on the supply side. So how much demand do you have to destroy a good point. to affect yeah. the supply side? Yeah. Um, so just to just to kind of wrap up here, but here's what's driving Powell. It's called the Volcker mistake. Uh, and if you go back to the you know, Volcker came in in 1979, he immediately set out to destroy inflation, started raising rates, and he did. But we had a recession in 1980, mm-hmm. a sharp one, that had nothing to do with Volcker monetary policy rates. Jimmy Carter put some stupid order on credit cards, and Americans put some cap on credit card interest. And Americans stopped using their credit cards. And it was like the pandemic. It was like you shut down the economy. Oh, gee, that was dumb. So they fixed it and it went back up again. But in the middle of that, Volcker blinked. He lowered rates seven percentage points um, in the middle of that 1980 recession. But inflation wasn't dead. Mm. And it came roaring back. And then he had to take it up to 20 to finally kill it. And, he, and I talked to Volcker about this. He said, yeah, that was, that was a mistake. But Powell knows. You mean the the pivot? The pivot that was that was pivot. that was a real p- seven seven percentage yeah. points. Um, and Powell knows that history, and he was around too. Uh, and he doesn't want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to get, be the guy who blinks early. So while Wall Street's saying, "Hey, hey, you got it. You know, you're at the terminal rate. Inflation's coming down." He's like, "That's what they told Volcker, and Volcker pivoted, and it was a major blunder, and it was much more painful 
to fix it the second time than if he had just persisted in the past. Powell doesn't want to be that guy, so he won't blink, and he will raise rates in December, March, uh, sorry, February and March, but by then it will be way past the... Uh, uh, the uh, the terminal rate and yeah. and that's such a good point. Like I, that last point is what I always say. Like because clients will say, well, when do you stop being bearish? It's the same same question. Everyone wants to know where the upside is, and it's just it's like it doesn't matter. Right. The reason why B rate just happened is because these rates these rate hikes just happen. Right. What just happened in housing? Home prices going from up 23 percent year over year to down eight. Right. The biggest drop in human history. Right is a function of a mortgage rate being 7%. Sure. So if they raise rates by one basis point, yep. it's it's gone. Yep. So it doesn't really matter. I guess in, in a way it's it's similar to the like calling the 08 crash for me was easier because there was no Twitter to answer to. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, there were no, I didn't have, I mean, I had yeah. like, I don't know, five clients. Um, and you know, you'd have an 11% stock market rally in a day in the S&P 500 because Bernanke would like say something. Yeah. Uh, with Powell, or with, with um, Paulson. Now it's like the you know again you look back the CPI rally the two day rally mm-hmm. mother of a rally worst day I've had in two years was the the big one that six yeah. percent update for the S and P um, and then last week's was two and a half hour rally mm-hmm. on the Powell speech two and a half hours yeah right? so you're getting like further and further away from oh wow to oh shit like right. the, oh wow inflation came down yeah to oh shit this is like a this is a bad recession, and he's going to keep raising rates. That's right. He's going to raise. He's, he's already been raising rates in the economic weakness. Now he's going to raise them into a recession. Uh, you know, I'm a critic of uh, Milton Friedman in some way. He was a great humanitarian, as an economist. I have a few criticisms. The one thing he got right that everyone agrees on is that monetary policy acts with a lag, an uncertain lag. Well, I'm sorry, you started raising rates in March. Uh, the the policy rate on March 1st was zero. Now it's four and a quarter. Uh, it's going to be 475 in you know a couple uh, 10 days uh, or, or less, and uh, to go from zero to 475 in eight months, nine months, that's that's more than Volcker did. You yep. know, at, 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 he eventually got much higher, but um, but Powell is determined to avoid this mistake, the, what I call the Volcker mistake, and he's going to keep raising. Now they will pivot, but it'll be too late. Mm-hmm. It'll be after the damage is done. Mm-hmm. So, which is that's what I say too. If, if if you get your pivot, it's because I was right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, well, you and I uh, agree on a lot of things. We debate a lot of things. Sure. It's, it was a. I could t- talk to you for another hour, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure everybody really in, in, enjoyed it too. So, thanks for your time. Don't forget to um, don't forget to get sold out. It's the latest in a long compendium of records books. By the way, if you haven't read any of them, I'd start with the first one and go through all of them. You're going to learn a lot. Uh, and, and, and thank you for teaching them again today. Thanks, Keith. Appreciate it. He's Jim's Re- Jim Records. You can find him, obviously, uh, on Twitter. I'll be there after this, too. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedgeye. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. 
Judge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the contents. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash Terms of Service.